This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from the Grimm Brothers. On the first, we'll see the benefits of getting loaded and fighting garden snakes. And on the second, we'll see that if you're at a dinner party and you see ghost children, you might want to let the host know. The creature this time is a tiger, or a monkey with gold teeth, or a riderless motorcycle, but only if a certain witch can get her favorite snack. This is Myths and Legends, episode 281, Beyond the Grave. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, there are two stories from the Grimm Brothers, with characters that move beyond the grave. Sorry about the Dark Tower teaser last week. I cut the Dark Tower story because I wasn't happy with how it ended up, and the Beyond the Grave theme felt more applicable. Anyway, for the first story, we jump in with a young man, who has to do what a lot of young men do in these tales. He has to leave home to find his fortune. On this one, though, we see what happens when the kids don't meet wizards or helpful mythological creatures. The young man didn't fear death. In fact, death was a constant companion. He had become used to its presence. Growing up in poverty in early modern Germany, he had seen friends and neighbors succumb to sickness. He had watched broken arms fester until fevers consumed the victims. He watched his own father starving, trying to feed himself and his son with the meager income from the mill. It wasn't enough. So the boy left. His father promised that he himself would go without, so the boy could stay, but the young man said he was leaving whether his father consented or not. It was like one of the old stories, where a young man would leave his home to find his fortune. The father shouldn't worry. The boy would be back in a few years, after winning the favor of the emperor. It was a nice story, and as the shots rained down on the young man, crouched behind what remained of the city, torn to pieces by the advancing army, the young man realized why people like him told each other these stories. They were nice. They gave a glimpse of a better life ahead, if you only ventured out. They were nice, but they were fiction. What the world really held was your friend, coughing up blood, dying in your arms. After he left, the young man had nearly starved on the road. He didn't meet any kind of mythological dwarves or enigmatic wizards only cruel, hard reality. He joined the service of the empire, more for a place to sleep and something to eat than out of love for the fatherland. He made friends, watched them die, and finally, there they were. The empire and the rebels were in the final pitched battle. This was where it would all be decided, and the young man's side was losing. He might not fear death, but he didn't want to meet it. Not yet, not for this. He rose, musket in hand. We will not let our fatherland be taken, he called out. He marched forward, and the others followed. They won the day, and with it, the war. The young man, thankful merely to be alive, to be able to see the other side of the war, first thought his friends were messing with him when he received his summons from the emperor. It took three letters and, finally, 
the emperor himself coming to the camp for the young man to believe him. The young man could barely process it. It was like one of the old tales. He had fought through adversity, and he was now being taken to live in the palace. The emperor recognized talent when he saw it, and it was thanks to the young man, and the young man alone, that he still sat on the throne. The young man was made first in the empire for his bravery, and he excelled. And it was even more like the old stories, because there was her. The emperor didn't have any sons. He did have a daughter, though. Yeah, he was absolutely trying to arrange it, so that the smart, capable, and brave young man would fall for his girl and she for him, and they would be wed, with the hero and his daughter taking over the empire upon his death. He would sit them next to each other at dinners, schedule meetings with both of them and then fail to show, and just give them every opportunity to get to know each other and fall in love. They didn't need that, though. The daughter of the emperor and the young man loved each other from the first words they exchanged. When you're a medieval princess, it can be almost impossible to control who you're married to. You don't want to find yourself in a bluebeard situation, stuck with an old man who has a cellar full of corpses, episode 48, by the way. But sometimes dads can be obtuse, seeing dollar signs and advancement, as opposed to a list of vanished ex-wives down to the floor. The princess had a different strategy. She said she wanted to marry for love, so anyone who wanted to marry her would have to take an oath. Whoever outlived the other wouldn't outlive the other very long. They would need to be buried alive with their late spouse. If the princess died first, her husband would be closed up in the tomb with her. If the husband shuffled off his mortal coil, the princess wouldn't see another dawn either. She reasoned that this wasn't a big ask. If her husband loved her with all of his heart, what use would life be to him after she was gone? Most of the potential suitors recognized how toxic and dangerous this oath truly was. Maybe the princess believed it. I like to think that she was just using it to weed out the men who would only marry her for her father's kingdom. Regardless, the emperor thought it was a capital idea, huh? And made all the suitors swear to this before their next rose ceremony. No one did. No one, that is, but the young man, the soldier. He had faced death his whole life. Loving someone, putting yourself out there, was dangerous in itself. And by the way, loving might be emotionally risky sometimes, but it should never be physically dangerous and someone shouldn't demand death in return for their love. I feel like that should go without saying, but maybe someone needed to hear that. Regardless, the young man, the hero, swore the oath. They had one happy year, and two years together, total, before death, that constant companion came for the woman he loved. She became sick, and the full power of the empire couldn't muster enough physicians to tell the emperor how to save his daughter. Her final weeks were spent in agony, until death claimed her. In the wake of the worst thing that had ever happened to him, the young man, the hero, forgot his oath. The emperor helped him remember, with spear points. I imagine that the young man said that the emperor couldn't possibly be serious. The emperor shook his head. Oh, he was. 
The stability of his realm, his succession plan, and his love for his son-in-law were nothing, nothing, compared to a toxic and dangerous oath made to someone who was no longer living. The king escorted his son-in-law to the tomb. Yeah, so you'll just hang out here until you die, the emperor said, gesturing to the five-by-eight-foot room with a body in the center. I'm not sure if it was a kindness for the king to leave wine and bread in the room. Really, the only thing that served to do was prolong the agony of being sealed in a tomb, watching the only person you love slowly decompose. Still, the gesture was nice, and when the king's apologies faded, hard to take someone's apology seriously when they're sealing you in a tomb with a corpse, the young man was alone. The kid just decided to go for broke, and to sleep the first night, he just guzzled the wine. After Jug 2, he was out. It was a little hazy. He had some natural light coming in from the top, so he wasn't in complete darkness and didn't suffocate. In the night, he thought he saw a snake emerge from a crack in the wall. He staggered to his feet, still very much feeling the jugs that he downed. No, no snake would touch his wife's decaying body on his honor. In his mind, this was a dragon and he was the brave knight defending the princess. In reality, he was a drunk guy chopping up a garden snake to defend the princess who was already dead. But, you know, sometimes you have to take the winds where you can find them. Sometime around dawn, there was another noise. His inebriation slowly blending into a hangover, the young man rose and saw another snake. Back for more, huh? But it wasn't going for his late wife's body. It was going for its friend's body. The young man watched as the snake went over to the body of its fallen friend and, pushing the pieces into place, went back to the hole and emerged with three leaves pinched between its body and tail. It placed the three leaves on each of the cuts and waited, pacing. The snake paced back and forth. The young man took another swig of wine to postpone the impending headache and drew a sword, just in case he needed to slice some more snake. After what he saw next, he corked the jug and put it away. He didn't need any more of this. He blinked. Where there had been only one snake and a corpse, there were now two living snakes. Where the second snake had placed the leaves on its friend's body, it had healed its friend. The second snake twitched at first, then wiggled, then looked at the young man in panic before darting back to the hole what it would have done had it lived long enough. And the second snake took a brief look at the leaves, and the young man, before following, the young man stood there speechless. Okay, had that just happened? That snake had brought the other back to life? The young man stood stunned, but only for a moment. He scooped up the leaves and, in a second, was standing over his wife, the person he loved. Here he had a chance, a chance to see her again, to bring her back. But should he? He didn't know what the repercussions to all of this would be. But he did know that he held the solution to everything in his hands. With these leaves, he could bring his wife, the woman he loved, back to life. Now, I don't know where you're going to put the leaves on your spouse to bring them back to the world of the living. Head, heart, and neck would be my guess, 
but that would just be a shot in the dark. It's not like there's precedent for any of this. The young man decided on her two eyes and mouth, and he didn't have time to second-guess his decision, because as soon as he laid the third leaf on her, she gasped to life. She sat up, brushing the leaves off of her. Where, where was she? What happened? The last thing she remembered was falling asleep in her bed. Why was she on this cold slab? Her husband, in tears, embraced her. Getting out of the tomb was actually pretty easy. The emperor had posted a guard to keep the prince from going back on his word and escaping. And when the guard heard both the prince and princess yelling that, you know, the situation had changed, please open up, he got the emperor and the monarch opened up the tomb. There, he saw his daughter at the peak of health. His son-in-law was rattled and hung over after spending a night downing wine in a tomb, but he would live. When we come back, we'll see that everything isn't quite what it seems, but that will be right after this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Something was different. The young man knew that trauma affects people differently, and they have different ways of moving on. And he knew that dying and coming back to life couldn't have been easy. But the princess didn't talk about what she saw when she closed her eyes that final time. And the prince didn't press. The emperor billed it as a miracle. But as the young man looked at the three snake leaves, he wondered, he had gone back to the tomb a few weeks later, and the leaves were still there, on the ground, where the princess had brushed them away. For some reason, he had never told her how she came back. To the rest of the kingdom, it was a miracle. The young prince knew the truth, though. It had been because of him, because of a choice he had made. The princess, though, was colder now. The young man couldn't quite pin it down, but she seemed to be different, changed. She would stare off into the distance. She would look at her father, the emperor, with a sense of disgust when he would do things that, while they were the empathetic choice, weren't always in the best interest of the empire. The prince would catch her looking at him with a gaze dripping with vitriol. She would quickly mask it, but he knew it had been there. She didn't return his embraces. Her words of love fell flat. She would spend long hours somewhere. The woman with whom he was so in love that he would go with her to the grave, I mean, mostly by choice, 
now couldn't bear to look at him. He didn't understand, but she wouldn't talk about it. She would talk about the plans, the plans for what she would do if she were in his position, the heir. It was curious. She was her father's daughter, and yet he, a soldier son of a farmer, would be king. Yeah, but when I'm king and your queen, we'll rule together, the prince cut her off, not really reading the room there. She smiled a polite smile, held the knife a bit longer while she gazed on her husband, and went back to what she was doing. The young prince wanted to clear his head, wanted to go back to a time and place where things had made sense, even if they were terrible. He wanted to go home. He told the king that when he left his father, the man was crushed by poverty. The young man was a prince now, the heir apparent, but then he stopped himself. Well, one of them, he smiled at his wife. She made a show of smiling back. Anyway, the prince said that he wanted the happy ending to the story where he went home to his father, gave him everything he needed, and the old man was able to live the rest of his life in happiness, knowing that his son would be fine. I would like to go with you, my dear husband, the princess stood. The prince's heart leapt. She did? That was fantastic, yes, please. He turned to his father-in-law, the emperor. Could he have a ship? It was across the sea. The emperor was just happy that the prince and princess were speaking. He said that he would outfit the ship immediately. In truth, he would have given them anything to see a modicum of the love between them that they had before his daughter's incident. The prince hadn't been on the sea since, since he enlisted in the army of the empire. Now, though, he was the empire. He was the heir apparent. Someday, he would rule side by side with the woman he loved. The woman he had loved. The princess's footsteps tapped along the deck. And soon, she stood beside her husband. He thanked her for coming. She didn't reply to that. Instead, saying that the sea, everything in it, and the land they would come to, one day, it would all belong to him. Us, he said, correcting her? She shook her head. No, no, it would be him. He would be in control, and he could leave her behind in an instant. But I wouldn't do that, the prince argued. He went into the darkness, to death for her. You wouldn't do it, the princess said. But years change people. Power changes people. The person you'll be in 20 years won't be that callow farmer's son making promises on the deck of a ship. He would be an emperor, an emperor that was only there because he married her. And if she couldn't give him sons, or if he just met somebody else, one of the countless people who would throw themselves at him as emperor, she would be at best cast aside, at worst killed. She sighed. She had so many plans for this empire. And they can be fulfilled. We can do it. Together, the prince said with a smile. Side by side, you and me. Oh, 
They'll be fulfilled, but not by us, by me, she said as the dagger slid into the prince's side. He cried out and tried to reach for his sword, but the attacker twisted the knife, pulled the prince's sword out, and threw it into the sea while the prince was writhing in agony. After you die, I'll turn the ship around and do the same to my father, she said. Then, no one would stand in her way. The prince dropped the deck. Blood poured out. The princess kissed the ship captain, the one she had convinced to carry out her wishes, and stabbed the prince while she distracted him. When he's dead, and make sure, confirm, throw him overboard, she said. The captain bent down with the knife, finished the job, and then some, and tossed the prince's body into the sea. The emperor heard the sobbing and saw his daughter rush into the room. He was dead, dead and there was nothing she could do. The emperor stood, who was dead? The princess said her husband, the prince. It was terrible. Their ship had been attacked by pirates. If it hadn't been for the help of the captain, she herself would have been lost. The sea claimed the prince, so there was no way she could follow him into the grave. The emperor didn't see the dagger behind the young woman's back. She sobbed, stepping toward the emperor, arm out to embrace him, but the emperor stepped back. The daughter stood upright and studied the man like a spider studies prey that just did something unexpected. She looked at her dad. Why did he back away like that? And this is what happened, the emperor asked. The prince was killed by pirates and lost at sea, and you barely escaped with your life. The daughter did the mental calculations. She sneered pulling the dagger from behind her back. It clattered to the ground. Yes, yes, that's what happened. Well then, daughter, it seems that your husband is not the only person who can bring people back from the dead, he said, and waved his hands. And just like they had rehearsed that afternoon, like five times, the prince stepped from behind the curtain in the throne room. The princess shook her head. How? The princess had been so consumed thinking about her victory that she didn't notice the rowboat slowly lower itself into the water after the sun had set. The prince's man kept his eyes on the bearing where he had seen his prince's corpse splash down. He stayed low, stayed quiet, and soon found his boss floating on the waves. With no small struggle, he dragged the prince aboard. The servant fished through his pack and found them the three snake leaves. He was the only person the prince had entrusted with the secret of what brought the princess back. The prince had been worried about his wife, worried about the changes he had seen in her. The princess didn't even know this man was aboard and definitely knew nothing of the three snake leaves. When the servant saw the attack, he sabotaged the ship and then made for the rowboat. No one even knew he had been there. The prince had gasped back to life in the boat and spent the next few minutes coughing up seawater. I had to know, the prince finished. 
there in the throne room. And if that meant death, then I was willing to die to believe you were the person that I loved. But she never came out of that tomb, did she? The king sat down in a slump. He couldn't do it. He was getting too old. He knew one of them had to give the order to decide what to do, but he couldn't. He loved his daughter too much. I can decide, the prince said. Then you're the emperor now. I've lived long enough to see a world that I don't want to rule. One where children murder their parents. Whatever you decide, that will be the law, the emperor said to the new emperor. We can't execute her. It would invite too much speculation. The former emperor breathed. But she cannot continue living. She who would kill us without a second thought. The prince, the new emperor, said. In the end, it was simple. The princess had left on a ship. They would use her own story. The old emperor and the new stood on a cliff, overlooking the sea. They could hear the screams, the muffled screams of the sea captain, who was bound and gagged alongside the princess. They had scuttled the ship. The sea would take both of them. The prince, alone, would escape. Then there'd be no questions. The old emperor sobbed and held his son-in-law and successor. He shook his head. This must be hard for you. The young emperor nodded. A tear formed in his eye. A tear he forced. Yes. Yes, it was. But that was a lie. He didn't feel anything. And he never would again. Thanks to the three snake leaves. I liked the story, but it was a little tricky to adapt. I didn't want the snake leaves to just make the people who use them evil. Just cold. By the way, if snake leaves seems weird, it is, a little. But snakes were seen as symbols of healing and regeneration in some ancient medieval cultures. The snake leaves themselves have a long history, stretching back as far as ancient Greece, where, in Greek mythology, they were used by either a god or a seer to bring a child of Minos back to life. The child of Minos proceeded to learn divination, but forgot it all when he spit in his teacher's mouth. So, compared to that, this story doesn't seem all that out there. Anyway, I tried to fill the gaps that the original left. The princess came back differently, but why? Well, like the prince later on, she didn't feel anything anymore. The original leans heavily into the adultery, but I really wanted to turn her into a logic monster. Seeing the world without love because she could no longer feel of. I also wanted to give the princess some solid arguments, and not just make her evil for evil's sake. Part of the reason for the initial oath was her wanting to have some control over the person she married. She still wanted to have control over her life, and her way of obtaining it was logical, but completely amoral. The tragic thing was that it wasn't her fault. The prince brought her back, like probably any of us would in that situation, he just didn't know that, like Pet Cemetery or Full Metal Alchemist, the person will return different. To illustrate the change in the prince, I had the king hand over the decision to him. And 
Yeah, it isn't a matter of if, but when he goes down the same path as the princess. It's a dark story, with kind of a bleak end. The prince made good on his promise, twice. The second time was to see if his love was truly gone, and it was, in more ways than one. The next story today is a short one. It's actually barely a story, but it has another character returning from beyond the grave to very different ends. But that will, once again, be right after this. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Um, I'm sorry, does no one see the ghost kid? The visitor asked. The trio, the mother, father, and child, all looked up from their lunchtime bread and gruel. Sorry, ghost kid? Yeah, I mean, I've been staying with you guys for, I don't know, a week now? The family nodded, and yeah, they loved having him, but ghost kid? Yeah, I'm surprised no one else has seen him. The father pinched the bridge of his nose. Okay, he loved his friend, but the guy was going to have to be way more specific. You can't just drop ghost kid into a conversation and then act like it makes complete sense. No, yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. It doesn't make sense, the friend said and pointed to the door. Every day, for three days, a young ghost boy would walk through that door, literally through the door, he was a ghost, and then walk to one of the back rooms. The friend didn't know how the family hadn't seen it, it wasn't that big of a house. The friend paused. No offense, of course. It was cozy. Um, but the kid just walked on back to one of the rooms, spent some time there, and then left out the front door again. The family looked at each other. Which room? You know, it's weird. I've been staying here for a week, and this room has stayed shut the whole time, the friend said, standing before the door. Please stop talking, the father said to his friend. Turn the doorknob. And the door creaked open. It had been four weeks, but nothing had been touched. The room was still exactly the same as it had been, as it had been when he had laid in the bed, when he died in the bed. It was the room where the children had slept, and the rest had been sleeping in the main room by the fire for the past four weeks. There, in the center of the floor, was the ghost of the couple's child, squatting and looking intently at a floorboard. He was pawing at it, trying to lift it, but he was a ghost, so, you know. The dust kicked up as the mother and father led the family over to where the child sat. He looked up at them, then down at the floorboard. The father felt the board. It was loose. They all knew that was where the kid used to hide things, he didn't think anyone knew about it. They all did. The father braced himself, wondering what kind of secret could keep their child from moving on, could bring him back from the grave. The mother lifted the loose floorboard and sighed. Two farthings. She knew exactly what this was. They had been in the street together one day, a couple months back. 
the boy and his mother. She had given him farthings to give to a man begging in the street. She knew that he had pocketed them. She imagined he had planned on buying sweets with them. But he never got the chance. He became sick soon after. She picked up the farthings with a sad smile. She told the boy that she would do it. She would give the coins away. He obviously felt guilt about the farthings, enough to keep him in this world. She wanted him to know that it was okay. He had been a little boy, and it had been okay for him to keep the money to buy sweets or whatever he planned on doing with them. He hadn't been punished. God hadn't taken him because of his disobedience. Sometimes people just become sick. Sometimes they die and it's no one's fault. The mother, father, and children began to tear up. It wasn't anyone's fault. The boy smiled one last time at his parents, and dissipated. They gave the farthings to a person in need, begging on the street. And from that day forward, the ghost child didn't come back. That night, the children returned to their room. This story hits me kind of hard. The fact that this child clung to the world of the living, that maybe they lived their last days not just in physical agony, but mental and spiritual agony as well, because they thought they were wrong or were being punished or something, is kind of crushing. It's kind of telling that the stranger could see the ghost of the child and not the family. It's like they were willfully pushing back, dealing with the trauma of losing a child. Even in a world where one in four children didn't make it out of infancy, and almost half didn't reach adulthood, the family being so willfully oblivious to the ghost of their child and sibling seemed to indicate a dissonance in the household. Unlike the first story, there was no attempt to change things, to fight fate. Only a somber acknowledgement, an act of love, a family confronting and moving on after a tragedy, and a child going to their rest, knowing that they were loved. It's a story where, thankfully, guilt and shame give way to reconciliation and healing. That's it for the stories this week. Next week, we're diving into the Popovo, a landmark text from Mayan mythology. If you're looking for something else to listen to, there's a new episode of Scoundrel out this week. Did you know that people actually drank irradiated liquid as part of miracle cure-all tonics in the early 20th century? And those tonics literally melted their bones and made their jaws fall off. Learn the story of the man who made millions off these tonics, Dr. William Bailey, and his final victim, Eben Foxy Grandpa Byers, on this week's Scoundrel. You can find it by following the link in the show notes, or by searching for Scoundrel wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Laic, a vampiric witch from Bali. It's a question we all get asked all too often, but would you eat human entrails? Probably not, hopefully not. What if they gave you the power to shapeshift into a tiger, or tear your head from your body and have it fly around in the night? I mean, to me, that's still not a difficult question. The answer is no. But for the Laic, that's apparently pretty tempting. The Laic is a vampiric witch, 
who spends her nights harvesting human entrails from graveyards. And if those are all tapped out, the other source of human entrails. It's not just for pure malice, though. She distills the entrails down into an elixir, and this is a truly powerful potion. I'm just going to list all the things this can turn you into. In addition to a tiger and a floating head, it can turn the witch into a bald giant, a ball of light, a monkey with golden teeth, a giant rat, a riderless motorcycle, and the favorite of Reddit AMAs, a bird the size of a horse. They like the blood of humans and animals, but not the blood of postpartum women apparently, this being one of the few creatures who seem to be respectful of that prey demographic. If your dog whimpers on a moonless night, congrats, the laic is near. Hope you have some gourmet leftovers available, because a bit of a snob, if you don't want to be drained of your blood and or entrails, the laic will accept a gourmet meal left outside for her. If you want to dispel one of these creatures, there's an elaborate ceremony to do so, but it apparently involves blood sacrifice, so that sounds like a cure that's kind of as bad as the disease. Luckily, the laic is thought to only possess her powers on the island of Bali, and if she moves to another island, she's just like any other elderly woman who likes chowing down on entrails. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. The theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more of the music we used in the show notes. Myths and Legends is a registered trademark of Bardic Enterprises, LLC. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.